If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They say it's not only mummified humans, but animals by the million, literally. Hawks, ibis, baboons, cats, dogs, crocodiles, rams, shrews, you name it, they mummified it. That was Joanne Fletcher speaking about ancient Egypt in a lecture she gave at our 2015 History Weekend event. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to our first podcast of 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In this episode, we're broadcasting a lecture from our 2015 History Weekend event. The speaker is Joanne Fletcher, an Egyptologist, author and broadcaster based at the University of York. The topic of her talk was her BBC Two series, Immortal Egypt, which, as chance would have it, began this Monday, the 4th of January. So let's head over to Malmesbury Town Hall and hear what Joanne had to say. It's wonderful to be in Malmesbury to talk about the new series in Ancient Egypt. As the official blurb says for the series, we feature the stories of everyday people as well as the kind of big-name pharaohs to, and I quote, look beyond the pyramids and Tutankhamun to examine new discoveries covering 20,000 years of history. Which, given that we've got four hours of television, that's been no mean feat. Of course, we always travel with our usual uh, small amount of baggage, much to the uh, disgust of uh, fellow travellers trying to catch flights from Heathrow. That's just a little bit of what we travel with, the sound equipment. The crane, we always have a crane. And our wonderful cameraman, Dave, also has this kind of new, he's very proud of it, kind of like a Robocop outfit on which he mounts this special camera. So he's wandering around Egypt in these stifling temperatures with a camera that weighs about four, four tonnes, I think. But there's a lot of equipment to film some remarkable sights. Now, we basically uh, began to tell our story of Egypt's ancient past with some of the newest discoveries, beginning at the site of Kerta in the far south of Egypt, where the most amazing rock art is currently being studied by Belgian archaeologist, good friend of ours, Dirk Heuger. It's really an incredible site. It's high above the Nile Valley on sandstone cliffs. 
And of course, the camera comes into its own. It's no mean feat building the camera in the first place to then winch up the camera and the crane to swing round and get as many intricate, spectacular shots as possible. Now, the rock art is predominantly herds of wild cattle, which appear to be kind of powering their way up out of the rock face. There are also ibex, my personal favourite, very smiley-looking hippos, and some incredible human figures, female figures. You might need the eye of faith here. They are headless, limbless, but they have very large posteriors. The Egyptians' basically earliest attempts at self-portrait. But the thing about this rock art is when it comes to dating this, Dirks had it scientifically dated to the Paleolithic period, and it's nearly 20,000 years old. It makes it the oldest rock art in the whole of North Africa, contemporary with the Lascaux cave paintings in France. But not only do these amazing scenes reveal that the ancient Egyptians were very, very skilled consummate artists from the earliest times, they also demonstrate that the North African landscape was once far, far more fertile than today because the rain belt once lay much further north creating this vast savanna right across the entire northern part of the continent, which supported a wide range of flora and fauna, including, of course, the humans who followed these cattle in seasonal migration. And they set up herding communities around 8,000 BC, but they were very much reliant on the seasonal rains. And this is re- revealed by yet another historical milestone. Again, in the south of Egypt, in an area which would once have been fertile, this is the area of Nabta. And this is the extraordinary thing. They created the world's oldest calendar. Now, they needed to predict when the rains would return, and it led to the creation of this piece of timekeeping equipment made of small blocks of sandstone arranged in a circle. The largest... um, are aligned to the summer solstice, which would mark the beginnings of the rainy season. Now, admittedly, it is only four metres across. If anybody's seen that brilliant film, This Is Spinal Tap, where they lower the uh, set down, they wanted a, a version of Stonehenge and it comes out much smaller. That's a little bit like the Nabta Stone Circle. And yet, it's 2,000 years older than Stonehenge. It's the world's oldest known calendar to date. And it's a solar-based calendar, which the Egyptians then used to mark the progress of their entire history. The Romans then adopted this, passed it on to the papacy, and, of course, is the calendar we still use today in the modern West, which has its origins in the Stone Age Sahara, which is quite mind-blowing. But this mini-monument wasn't all that was created at Nabta. We were allowed when we filmed, we obviously got the trusty crane out with the camera on the end to get a spectacular view of this thing and then zoom in to show it's actually quite weeny. Uh, And I was allowed to sit there and make a quip about here we are literally at the beginning of time because it might not look much, but it's the origins of the way we on planet Earth started to calculate time, the passing of time, the oldest evidence we have so far at least, but also at this wonderful site large-scale stone sculptures. Um, This has been described as a surrogate sacrificial cow. You've got to have the eye of faith again, uh, but apparently it is a cow. And like other monoliths which were found originally at the site of Nabta, they weigh up to two tonnes each. And because they were transported from a sandstone quarry over a mile away from the original site, they represent huge investments in time and effort 
and organisation, but also the beginnings of the Egyptians' belief in bovine deities, bulls and cows. This is a beautiful head of the cow goddess Hathor from, oh, much later, 3,000 years after this wonderful thing was made. But you can see the beginnings of what would become a familiar image. By about 5,000 BC, the rain belt was gradually shifting south, and as the rains diminished, the Sahara Desert became the beige land we know today. And the only reliable source of water was the mighty River Nile, which cuts right through the heart of Egypt, flowing from south to north. And as you can see from this image from space, the narrow green banks are really the only place that humans could survive without rainfall. And of course, over several centuries, the people of the former savannah lands moved east to establish communities along the Nile's fertile banks, which will be then replenished every summer by an annual flood. Now you can see it's a limited area of arable land used for both farming and housing, while the desert, which makes up the other 95% of Egypt then and now, was used for burials, quite logically. Bodies were placed in holes, in the sand, surrounded by belongings for use in the afterlife. Of course, the housing on the riverbanks is long gone, in contrast to the burials in the desert, which are increasingly part of rescue excavations as former burial grounds have been reclaimed gradually as farmland. But in Egypt's pre-literate period, these burials are the best evidence we have for the earliest Egyptians, the most, most famous of whom is this chap, an anonymous male known as Ginger on account of his faded red hair. Now, with such people living in settlements up and down the River Nile by around the 4th millennium BC, the country eventually polarised into north and south. You can see settlements developing in the north around the Delta and Mediterranean and then in the south around Upper Egypt. And as time went on, each developed their own customs and belief and uh, had leaders who soon achieved an almost godlike status through combinations of military prowess and their access and control of key resources like gold. Now, evidence for the northern rulers, absent for many, many years, is only now coming to light at Delta sites like Tel Farka up here, where this fabulous figurine in gold and lapis lazuli, the eyes, some uh, 2,000 years before Tutankhamun's famous mask used the same materials, but already put together around 3,400 BC to represent these northern rulers. The same was also happening in the south. Uh, Egypt's earliest known royal cemetery at a site called Abydos, where these massive subterranean tombs beneath the desert surface were similarly wealthy, as revealed by excavations and so forth, where traces of the original goods ransacked in antiquity, but some still managed to survive in certain quarters. Uh, gold top vessels and so forth, jewellery, clothing, well-stocked wine cellars. You've got to love the ancient Egyptians. And some things, even though they'd been robbed, were, were itemised on these little things, small bone labels about the size of a postage stamp, each pierced through very carefully with a hole through which string or twine was attached to then fasten onto the chests or the vessels in which the grave goods were stored, everything from bolts of linen to jars of oil and so forth. The quantity, place of origin marked on in these very, very early hieroglyphs, proto-hieroglyphs they're called. 
But not only are these tiny, tiny little things the earliest evidence for the way the Egyptians had rapidly organised their country and were able to extract taxes in the form of goods and then bury them with these local leaders. These pictograms form what's been described as a phonetically readable script, which is claimed as the earliest writing anywhere in the world, apparently predating that in Mesopotamia, which Egyptologists and scholars of the Near East are still debating in a most lively fashion. So 3250 BC is pretty early for writing of this sort. And it's a deceptively simple-looking picture writing, evolved over several millennia into a system of several thousand individual hieroglyphic symbols. And they became the means by which officials administered uh, Egypt on behalf uh, of a king, because by 3100 BC, Egypt emerged as the world's first nation-state under the rule of a single king named Nama. You can see him standing uh, tall there, the largest figure on the far side there, demonstrating his power over life and death as he terminates the unfortunate leader of the north, his northern rival, to unify northern and southern Egypt into the world's first nation-state. Now, this idea of demonstrating your power over life and death, as seen on this so-called Nama palette, is very, very graphic, but it was something again demonstrated by Nama's son and successor, Aha, named after that famous 80s pop group. <laughs> the names are quite interesting. Who again was buried at Abydos, accompanied by his retainers and officials. Now, usually assumed to have been buried whenever they happened to die, a re-examination of their physical remains has revealed an average age of around 25, suggesting... These individuals all died at the same time. Now, there's no sign of the neck fractures associated with death by strangulation, so poison or stabbing have been suggested as alternatives. And although both poison and stabbing are hard to trace through fragmentary skeletal remains, more of the, the bone labels from the site of Abydos actually show individuals being pierced through the chest with a blade and the blood being collected in a bowl. Now... Aha and his successors certainly seem to have practised this in, in some cases, over 500 retainers buried in individual graves like this surrounding the burial of the monarchs that they'd served in life. But some Egyptologists seem kind of unwilling to accept the Egyptians could ever have practised human sacrifice, as if a surgical insertion of a blade into the chest is somehow far more horrendous than having one's brains bashed out with a mace. We've done experimental archaeology with both. We know which we'd prefer when our time came, if we had to pick. Fortunately, such practices did die out, and monarchs were buried with figurines of their officials, but they still required imposing tombs as a mark of their status. And when the royal burial site moved from Abydos in the south up to the northern site of Saqqara, right next door to Memphis, which was the ancient culture's earliest capital, the royal tombs were set high on the desert escarpment to be seen for miles. And basically, the same subterranean burial chambers were then topped by a bench-shaped superstructure called a mastaba, which is the Arabic for bench. But the creation of a wall around the tomb, the mastaba tomb uh, of the third dynasty king called Djosa, meant that from the valley floor, from the city below, the tomb couldn't be seen, and so Joseph's architects added several more steps on top, just so it could be visible over the top of the wall. 
and it rose to a height of around 60 metres, creating Egypt's first pyramid around 2650 BC. This is the famous Step Pyramid of Djoser at Saqqara, Egypt's earliest pyramid, and yet there are 138 at least pyramids in Egypt. The Great Pyramid of Giza is, of course, the most famous by far. And as Egypt's most famous monument, we filmed it inside and out. Um, a superb structure. Admittedly, the best view is to be found at the local pizza hut at Giza, where you can get quite high up and then film directly across. It looks like a beautiful shot, but we're all there, you know, scoffing pizza and having a jolly good time. Um, but you've really got to go for every possible angle you can when you're filming like this. The Great Pyramid, uh, 480 feet high, made of two and a half million blocks of limestone, each weighing, on average, between two and two and a half tonnes. It means that during the 23-year reign of the king that built it, King Khufu, 340 blocks had to be moved each day. That's 34 blocks in a 10-hour day, each hour, which equals one block every two minutes. That's, that's pretty impressive. And, of course, the pyramids are long assumed to have been built by an army of slaves, you know, so beloved of the Hollywood epic. Poor slaves being beaten to a pulp to erect this statement of power. And yet, the discovery of the pyramid builder's town close by in 1988 began to reveal the homes of the real people behind this incredible site. They had a purpose-built settlement. It featured detached homes for management barracks for the builders, whose bed emplacements we even got apt to try out. That was quite cosy. They, they really did live cheek by jowl. They also ate in communal dining rooms where their bread and their beer, their meat and their fish were supplied from industrial-sized stockyards on site. There were breweries, there were bakeries making very high-carb sourdough loaves in little terracotta pots. Experts have been studying the animal remains from the site to calculate the kind of diets and so forth. And in, in some cases, the workers are still here too. Their skeletal remains in their own small tombs at this site at Giza, revealing, unsurprisingly, arthritis, uh, compressed vertebrae, curvature of the spine, and from comparative purposes, the vertebrae of a, a worker and the vertebrae of an overseer, you can see the difference in, you know, how much physical work these guys had to do. However, the remains also reveal successful amputations, healed fractures, revealing the ancient world's most famous, largest, certainly, building site also had medical facilities. And it's been possible to estimate a core workforce of around 4,000, whose numbers were greatly increased each summer, when farmers were unable to work because the Nile floods from July to September or did before the creation of the High Dam in the 1960s. So your fields were underwater for three months of the year. And so they were temporarily redeployed, shipped north to Giza in a kind of mass effort to propel their god king into an afterlife they might just get to share in. Inevitably, however, this could not last. Such vast expenditure on such vast tombs as the pyramids severely undermining the economy. And then in 2280 BC, this man became king. Well, he was six years old at the time. This is King Pepe II. He was six at his accession, shown on the lap of his mother, who ruled on his behalf as regent. He ruled then for 94 years, the longest reigning monarch in history, so far anyway. Elizabeth II is doing quite well. 
But Pepe II was a, a kind of pivotal figure in many ways because longevity in the case of Pharaoh brought quite a few problems because a key part of kingship was the ability to maintain a, a powerful godlike public image through traditional rites, including running the sacred race. I love the idea of pharaohs actually having to sprint. They also had to spear, ritually spear crocodiles and hippos to show their prowess and certainly run the sacred race. So we went to the sacred race track. I did a few, I didn't really work up much of a sweat, I have to say, but I was, I was going for it and poor Dave had to walk backwards with the camera. But we were trying to get a sense of the royal display in, in performing these rites where Pharaoh had to appear physically as a superman. So you can imagine pushing 100, the ageing Pepe's diminishing physical prowess, certainly undermining public faith in any notion of a god-king. And then climate change struck again. A shift in atmospheric circulation around 2150 BC, reducing the rains in the Ethiopian highlands, which obviously feeds the River Nile. And it was a tragic time in Egypt, a reduction, dramatic reduction in Nile flood levels led to serious famine, which was now portrayed in previously idealised art. Now the Egyptians are portraying themselves as truly suffering. People are fainting through lack of food. Ribs are being portrayed on unfortunate individuals like this. And, of course, the pharaoh is unable to redistribute wealth because there's not much wealth to redistribute. The monarchy losing power. Their courtiers, who previously were so loyal to the monarchs that provided their entire livelihoods, cut their losses and relocated to their hometowns throughout the Nile Valley, setting up petty kingdoms with their own private armies. They were even buried with models of these armies. So important was the presence of the military right throughout the Nile Valley at this time. Egypt then entered a period of anarchy, a real dark age we don't often hear about, when even the royal tombs from earlier times were ransacked. Texts at the time report that all is ruin, blood is everywhere. The lawless despoil the land of the kingship, great and small say, I wish I were dead. And the inscriptions in the tomb of one local warlord we were given uh, permission to enter actually graphically show this. The texts on the tomb walls say, all of Egypt was dying of hunger, the determinative hieroglyph for dying, quite obvious there. Everyone was forced to eat their own children which is a horrible claim, but again, you have this individual and the hieroglyphic determinative for to eat. So it really was a time of terrible, terrible suffering. Only by around 2160 did the Nile gradually return to full flow. And as the local warlords continued to slug it out between themselves, the South became victorious. Once again, reunited Egypt from their base in Thebes, modern Luxor, but... This victory came at a great cost. The remains of the soldiers who took part in reunifying Egypt were found in 1923 in a mass grave at the site of Deir el-Bakri, just up here. It's famous for its temples, the Temple of Hatshepsut's a fame, the most famous one at the site. But the guy who reunited Egypt had his temple there first around 2000 BC, buried his fallen war heroes up here in a mass grave. It was excavated by the Americans in 1923 and... The remains are absolutely so moving. Individuals who have been pierced with arrows, hit with the mace. Some still had their leather wrist guards, the ancient archers. And we were allowed to re-enter the tomb. And again, that was, that was a very kind of sobering experience, shall we say. I'll not give away what happens, but it was 
a real privilege to see these people who had fought and died to reunite their country. They established three centuries of stability marked by, must be said, great cultural achievements and great wealth. The Egyptian kings not only resumed pyramid building again, there was enough wealth in the royal coffers, but created permanent defences right around their borders. The most impressive were a series of huge castles, huge forts along their border with Nubia, uh, modern Sudan, in a chain right down here, the most famous of which at the bottom, Buhen, was made of millions and millions of mud bricks. The very beginnings of castle architecture, if you like, and it, it really secured the area where Egypt obtained its gold from the Nubian gold mines. And these structures had crenellated walls, parapets, moats, a drawbridge system, little slits for the archers, and so impregnable they were never taken by human force. They were impervious to all human attack until sadly lost forever in the 1960s beneath the rising waters of Lake Nasser with the creation of the Aswan Dam. Some of the stone temples could be moved. It's e relatively easy to move huge blocks of stone, but impossible to move mud brick. And the heartbreaking sight of these things collapsing like jelly into the waters. Fortunately, we, we were very lucky to find uh, some uh, archive footage of the forts before destruction. But it really brings home how determined the Egyptians were to safeguard their, their, their empire and reinforce their borders. But they didn't just rely on military might. They turned to magic to control and defeat enemies and hidden forces, from melting wax effigies to smashing pottery figurines. And I find all this fascinating, the fact that you write your name on a, a, an image, smash it, you've destroyed it, or you write the name of the enemy across the wooden figurine's chest and then destroy that in fire or you use the good old uh, medieval standby, stick pins in to control. It's a, an aspect of Egypt we, we, we don't associate with them. We tend to think of them wafting sideways around big stone temples, but not small-scale domestic magic, which also included the wearing of masks for various reasons in, in household contexts. This is a, a mask we were allowed to film, often uh, believed to have been worn by the midwife during labour, Masks of this sort were designed to draw down the powers of the cow goddess Hathor and other deities to ensure a safe birth. I don't think in the middle of birth I'd want people running around dressed in scary masks, but apparently it had a comforting effect. But that's the aspect of ancient Egypt I really do find fascinating, how people lived on a daily basis. And this includes the things they wore with linen production, so important, little workshops of weavers, tiny little figurines given to individuals at death to be buried with them so they have a perpetual source of linen. Ditto the all-important eyeliner, which men, women and children wore as a form of ancient sunglasses and the copper content keeping away the flies that cause eye disease. In fact, so important were the minerals for such makeup. They were brought in by traders from the area of what is now Palestine. You can see the hieroglyph for eye makeup, Mesdemet, it's called, and there it is and they're bringing it in. And the Egyptians were intrigued by these traders that had long come in and out throughout the northeast border because they looked so different to the Egyptians in their plain white linen. The Palestinian traders had these bright coloured clothes and these newfangled shoes the Egyptians thought were really cutting edge. They called them enveloping sandals because they covered the foot. And they, they loved to show different people they came into contact with through their dress, through their costume. 
And yet other hieroglyphs on here spell out another chapter in Egypt's story. You can see these three hieroglyphs here in front of the leader of these Palestinians. This is the leader, this is the ruler, the ruler of the hill countries, which is vocalised in ancient Egyptian as Hekahasut, which we know as Hyksos. And the Hyksos, the Palestinians, were quite remarkable people. They came into Egypt, they settled in Egypt uh, gradually, they rose up through the ranks uh, through officialdom and eventually managed to take the throne around 1650 BC. So for a century, these Palestinian kings, these Hyksos kings, controlled Egypt until the Egyptians finally rebelled. Led again by the Thebans in the south, they had learnt from the newfangled weapons that the Palestinians had brought with them. Certainly the composite bow, far more powerful than the simple bows that had been used by the Egyptians prior to this. Also the curved scimitar, the chariot and the horse, all of these were then utilised by the Egyptians to push out the Hyksos from their northern stronghold, push them right back up into Palestine. And at this point, around 1550 BC, the Egyptians established their empire at its greatest extent, right up as far as the Euphrates, modern Syria, way down into Nubia, which is modern Sudan. So a vast, vast empire indeed. And this also marks the beginning of the so-called New Kingdom, based in Thebes in the south, as I said, modern Luxor there. And it was a great, great city, uh, focused on the great temple of Karnak. That's the imposing facade. This is the high front gate, the first pylon, which, of course, they always send me and Dave up to if they can find a really high spot. Just put your camera right on the edge for a spectacular shot, and then I get to mince about here and, and not look down. My mum always hated me filming on top of pylon. She says, oh, I just can't watch. It, it is a little bit nerve-wracking, but the shots are spectacular and you get a real feel of how massive this temple was. And then opposite uh, Karnak, directly opposite on the west bank of the Nile, the royal burial ground in the Valley of the Kings. So Karnak's here. There's a ceremonial way right here to Deir al-Bakri, facing the river, over into the Valley of the Kings. So again, up to the highest point to get a vista all the way round. Again, the crane comes out and gets these sort of pretty spectacular shots. It takes hours, but it is so worth it. But the Valley of the Kings really is a fabulous place. The Royal Burial Ground in use from around 1550 to around 1080 BC. And here we can see the actual valley itself um, over the cliffs at Deir el-Bakri, which faces the Nile and Karnak down here. But no longer were monarchs building these huge pyramid complexes with the special funerary temples and then the burials in the centre of the pyramid. They'd kind of started to deconstruct. The penny had finally dropped after 2,000 years that if you're going to build a massive structure, everybody knows where the gold is. Very bright. They caught on quick. So the funerary temples where the royal souls could be worshipped were uh, built, where they could be visible from the Nile, the royal tombs, on the other hand, where the actual bodies were that benefited from the worship here, were over the cliffs, hidden away in the Valley of the Kings, a remote valley. And it is best seen with the wonderful temple of, of one of Egypt's many female pharaohs, Hatshepsut. It's a spectacular temple. However, this wasn't the largest. This belonged to my favourite pharaoh. I'd do a Mexican wave now, but there's only one of me. I adore Amenhotep III. He was Tutankhamun's grandfather. He... Anything that was wonderful in Egypt, he did. I am screamingly biased and I don't apologise. 
Um, but Amenhotep III built the largest funerary temple, which pretty much went right back to the foot of the hills. And although these two statues, the so-called Colossi of Memnon, are until recently pretty much all that remained, ongoing excavations are finding more and more of the pharaohs' statues, literally just beneath the surface and they are coming out of the ground like literally sleeping giants reawakening. It really is that dramatic. And I was, oh, I mean, they had to really pull me away. That face in alabaster, absolutely stunning. So we were pretty pleased with that. We, we were allowed to film new things literally just coming out the ground. However, we didn't have to go as far as Egypt in every case to film spectacular things from this very wonderful reign of Amenhotep III. One of his female courtiers was buried in a coffin whose gilded face is as beautiful as this. And this was found only last year in Wigan. (laughs) Doesn't everything good come from Wigan? Because when Wigan's museum stores were brought together in a purpose-built storage facility, staff were going through the boxes which were coming in from various parts of the region. We were invited to study what they were discovering And we were allowed to handle these things. I had to give that back in the end. We nearly made it out the door, not quite. But this is a shameless plug for anybody who happens to be going uh, through Wigan. Um, It's a wonderful exhibition. But certainly, this anonymous lady is the star of the show. And again, we were allowed to film this. So when people ask me, oh, there can't be anything left to find relating to ancient Egypt. Oh, yes, there is. We have just scratched the surface. Not just in Egypt, but in rather more unexpected places. Of course, the most famous such mask found in 1922 in the tomb of Tutankhamun. And of course, in the uh, films, we have to tell his story. So we decided to go back to the original excavation photographs to look at the object when they were found, to try and make sense of it all, because there's evidence that at least 80% of the items in the tomb, found in the tomb, hadn't been made for Tutankhamun himself. It now seems that his burial was a way to get rid of a lot of the material relating to his unpopular predecessors, his father, the so-called heretic pharaoh Akhenaten, and Akhenaten's wife and co-ruler, the wonderful Nefertiti. This even includes the most iconic object from Egyptian history because according to Egyptologist Nicholas Reeves, this is actually the mask of Nefertiti, whose original face was covered over with a different kind of of gold because the gold used on the face here and on the neck is different to the gold here and certainly the ears. The other thing Reeves points out is that these ears are definitely pierced and male pharaohs in ancient Egypt were not shown with pierced ears once they'd reached adulthood. So whoever the mask was made for was not an adult male pharaoh, adult female pharaoh, Nefertiti, quite possibly. This is something certainly... Uh, we personally believe too. And then a couple of months ago, Reeves again made headlines when he revealed that high-resolution scans of Tutankhamun's burial chamber, actually the scans were taken in 2014, revealed two possible doorways. This is uh, the burial chamber where Tutankhamun's mummy and uh, outer gold coffin and sarcophagus are. But there is a suggestion of two ghostly doorways, which Reeves suggests could be two more chambers at least which is quite intriguing, in which another royal could be buried. So you can see that even Egypt's most familiar icons 
still hold secrets, so many secrets. But of course, Tutankhamun's tomb isn't the only tomb in the Valley of the Kings. There are at least 64 more, um, where we also filmed the largest of the king's tombs of Seti I. Uh, we were allowed to film uh, in the burial chamber and, and so forth quite extensively for the new series. We also worked quite a lot in the, uh, on this series and, and previous ones in the purpose-built settlement of the individuals who actually built the Valley of the King's Tombs, the worker settlement at Deir el-Medina, in and out of the various houses, looking who lived there, what kinds of jobs they did. Because it's not all about the great and the good, it's about the real people, the people whose graft created this wonderful culture. People like Amanakt, shown here on the left, he was a scribe and a map maker, and with his fellow workmen actually downed tools on the first known strike in history in 1155 BC. They were reacting to non-payment of wages caused by inflation and growing famine, the economic downturn, again seeing royal power dwindle to the extent that the entire country once again fragmented into its default position north and south, with Thebes ruled by the high priests at Karnak, self-styled priest kings, one of whom was called Piank, which is quite a nice name. And they took over both uh, secular and royal titles, as well as their religious titles. They were self-styled priest kings who could smugly ask in their surviving correspondence, Pharaoh, of whom is he the master these days? Because Pharaoh had relocated up north. So Pharaoh was in the north, the south was ruled from Thebes by these priest kings. However, Egypt, because of its military weakness, had lost controls of the gold mines in Nubia, and so the priest kings needed other sources of wealth, and they didn't have far to look. They decided to target the royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings as part of official policy, and this is the very letter sent by the priest king Piank to this guy, a man called Buta Arman. He was a scribe. And he was now given the euphemistic title, opener of the gates of the necropolis. Official thief, really. And he was told in this letter to go and perform for me a task on which you've never before embarked. Uncover a tomb among the tombs of the ancestors. Kind of dressing up what was actually state-sanctioned tomb robbery. And this is exactly what Buta Arman and his men did. Regularly travelling the highways and byways over to the Valley of the Kings, entering the royal tombs, taking out the royal mummies unwrapping them, stripping them down to access wealth like this, which could either be melted down or, in this case, reused in subsequent burials and handed out as gifts to courtiers. Now, by the time we get to the first millennium BC, Egypt was in a bit of a fix, and the whole of this this first millennium BC is a tale of of constant political sort of fallaway, really, constant invasion and counter-invasion from foreign powers, because the priest kings in Thebes had Libyan blood, and Libyans gained an upper hand in Egypt, controlled quite a lot of the country. But then, almost like poetic justice, the Nubians, who'd been under the Egyptian kosh for so long, had had enough, and the Nubians invaded Egypt from the south. And this is where, obviously, the, uh, the White Nile and the Blue Nile come together at Khartoum. It's the source of the real River Nile that flows right up through Egypt. And we went to the confluence of the Nile to film it, and it's the home of these Nubian pharaohs who wanted to, be, to appear more Egyptian than the Egyptians. They retook Egypt, 
they were devout followers of Egyptian religion. So when they invaded around 747 BC, it was almost in a manner of a crusade to restore traditional values. They ruled as textbook pharaohs. They controlled both Egypt and Nubia in this huge, long, continuous empire, which we were very lucky to be able to film. They even resumed pyramid building. They built temples and so forth. And there are now more pyramids in the Sudan, ancient Nubia, than there are in Egypt. Admittedly, they, the angles are quite interesting. They look like blocks of Toblerone. <laughs> but they, were, they knew what they were trying to do anyway. Ultimately, however, the Nubians were then defeated when the Assyrians swept in from the east to seize Egypt and install local client kings at this city of Sais. And the Assyrians almost disappeared as soon as they'd arrived as they had to go back east to deal with their own problems. But the client kings they installed managed to retake Egypt, the Sayite pharaohs, local northern boys made good, again, keen to show themselves as traditional pharaohs. And they really did revitalise Egypt. They were real shot in the arm. They began work on the first uh, Suez Canal. They circumnavigated Africa, would you believe? They sent out a crew of Phoenicians and Greeks to circumnavigate Africa on their behalf. They kick-started the economy and really did initiates a renaissance in native culture. This is revealed by superb statuary, perfect in its execution. Temples were rebuilt and restored. And the Sayites were keen to copy how things had been done in the good old days when Egypt had been a world power second to none. So they went into the old pyramids at Giza and Saqqara, sought out the mummified remains of long-dead rulers, rewrapped them where necessary, gave them new coffins. And this face-to-face... Contact with Egypt's glorious ancient past really did initiate a new wave in mummification. But the Sayites not only mummified humans, but animals by the million, literally. Hawks, ibis, baboons, cats, dogs, crocodiles, rams, shrews, you name it, they mummified it. Each would be transformed at death into a kind of linen-wrapped offering in such vast numbers. The priests could no longer walk in stately procession holding one at a time. They had to wheel them along in carts. And this being telly, and obviously not wanting to pay too much licence fee, pay your money, they found me a wheelbarrow. So there's, again, I don't want to give too much away, but there's some interesting shots of me with wheelbarrows and lots of animal mummies. Bizarre. But it kind of hammers home the, the mass industry that this then was. But animal mummification wasn't just a part of the economy. Pilgrims able to purchase the mummies and offer them back to the gods of their choice. But it was a way to demonstrate Egypt's unique culture to all foreign outsiders. The Greeks were particularly impressed, it has to be said. So many Greeks travelled out to Egypt as tourists. Most key aspects of Egypt's culture are today known by their Greek names. Pyramids, obelisks, hieroglyphs. Even the River Nile and the name of Egypt itself, all are Greek in origin. And it's this special relationship between Greece and Egypt which would soon be vital to both of them because where Assyria had left off, the Persians began sweeping in from the east in all their full force. And Persia's expanding empire certainly threatened to engulf both Greece and Egypt. This is obviously still from uh, the 300, but it's it's as close as I could get to this idea of millions of Persian men on the march. And the Persians did take over Egypt in 525 BC. Egypt remained an occupied nation, occupied by the Persians. The Persian king ruling in absentia far, far away in the Persian capital Persepolis, but demanding 
large amounts of tribute, which could make the journey all the more quickly uh, when the Persians introduced that most Egyptian of all creatures, the camel, who could take the tribute all the way to Persepolis. So it's an interesting thing that the camel is such a late introduction and yet seen as so typically Egyptian. But with Greek help, the Egyptian resistance took back their country in 404 BC and for 60 years enjoyed really full independence. The Persians return in 343 BC, lasting a mere decade before they fell, before the unstoppable force that was Alexander the Great. Another hero, absolutely adore the man. Uh, Military despot, dictator, yes, but he had his good side as well. Uh, And here he is, uh, the man himself. It's because he loved Egypt so much, because he was at pains to have himself portrayed as a typical pharaoh. This is Alexander the Great on both sides of the screen, but as pharaoh, worshipping the traditional deities of Egypt. He pushed the Persians out of the eastern Mediterranean, including Egypt, in 332 BC. He was hailed as a liberator by the Egyptians, crowned as Pharaoh, his name Alexandros, written in the traditional cartouches. He spent six months in Egypt. He founded the great city of Alexandria on Egypt's Mediterranean coast and then left Egypt to complete his conquest of the Persian Empire taking Egyptian religion as well as Greek culture some 11,000 miles east over the next eight years. And he was only 32 when he died in Babylon in 323 BC, although his body was mummified Egyptian style. His empire was then divided up between his generals, one of whom was his rumoured half-brother Ptolemy, fascinating individual, who seized Egypt for himself and established his own Ptolemaic dynasty of male and female pharaohs who controlled Egypt for the last three centuries BC, culminating in, of course, the great Cleopatra herself, who apparently turns out to be a redhead. What's not to like? <laughs> so it's, it's a, a fascinating story. The Ptolemies, I have to say, get a very bad press. They aren't sufficiently Egyptian for Egyptologists, not Greek enough for classical scholars, or many of them, but I adore them. It's largely thanks to the very flamboyant Ptolemies we know as much as we do about Egypt because it's their edict on the famous Rosetta Stone, which was the way in which modern scholars were able to translate the hieroglyphic script because the Ptolemies were keen to employ bilingual scholars to translate for them Egypt's 3,000-year-long history. The texts were studied and stored in the Great Library, which the Ptolemies created at Alexandria. It's obviously a photograph taken at the time. But at the heart of Alexandria, facing the Mediterranean, was the mummified body of Alexander himself, after Ptolemy had seized it, burying it in great splendour as the focus of the Ptolemy's ruler cult. So we filmed a lot in Alexandria, away from the land of beige to the land of the blue, where Egypt meets the sea, and visually very different. We filmed at the medieval fort, which was originally the Ptolemy's great Pharos lighthouse, just a an idea of when I appear just to be mumbling to myself walking along. There's Dave with his Robocop outfit, um, our director watching the monitor, the camera assistant to take this off Dave before he keels over, the sound man, uh, the assistant producer. There's a cast of thousands, so you might just see me, but there are so many brilliant people behind the scenes. We also got permission to film in the Great Library, the new version, in amongst all these wonderful tomes. It's a fabulous modern tribute to the great library where the Ptolemies stored their ancient texts. And to get a flavour of the busyness who went out around the Alexandrian markets at night, this kind of cosmopolitan hustle and bustle, down into the subterranean tombs with their 
amazing combination of Greek and Egyptian motifs because the Ptolemies were intrigued by the ancient religion of this adopted homeland. And in the same way they employed scholars to record Egypt's history, they did the same with the religion to try and work out which Greek god could be paralleled with the Egyptian gods to make deities acceptable to all. At immense cost, they also rebuilt many of Egypt's temples throughout the Nile Valley. So many of the temples tourists see today are in fact Ptolemaic. All the way far to the south, we've got Alexandria right at the top, Philae Temple on the border with Nubia. And it's a perfect full stop for Egypt's ancient history because the very name Philae means the end. It was the very last place ancient Egypt's gods were worshipped here long after the acceptance of Christianity elsewhere in the ancient world. The very last hieroglyph was written here in Philae on the 24th of August, 398 AD. And on that day, 24th of August, 398, I love the fact we know what day it was, Egypt's ancient culture was pretty much rendered mute for 1,400 years until scholars discovered the Rosetta Stone, finally managed to translate its hieroglyphic script besides the Ptolemy's helpful Greek translation, allowing the ancient Egyptians to finally speak for themselves. And in doing so, it really resurrected an ancient world whose popularity is now universal, who doesn't love ancient Egypt. And hopefully we've lived up to the series title, Immortal Egypt, the world's greatest civilization. And just as a, a final note, before the series hits, anybody desperate to know more, Story of Egypt is out now. But thank you very much for your attention. That was Joanne Fletcher speaking at our 2015 History Weekend in Malmesbury. Immortal Egypt is currently showing on BBC Two. Check out your listings guides for more details and you can also catch up on the first episode on the BBC iPlayer. And Joanne has written a book to accompany the series. That's entitled The Story of Egypt. It's out now in the UK, published by Hodder and Stoughton. And in the US, it's due to be published in the summer by Pegasus. And following the success of our History Weekend, our events programme is continuing in 2016. Next month, we're holding two-day events on the First World War and Roman Britain, respectively. Head to historyextra.com forward slash events for more details on those and to book tickets. Meanwhile, why not check out the January edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. In this month's issue, we have articles on medieval violence, Wallace Simpson, War and Peace, and the murder of Edward II, among other things. You can get hold of our January edition in all good news agents and our many digital formats. And just before we go, here is the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Long-lost Roman roads have been uncovered by aerial flood maps used to detect the areas of Britain that are most at risk of flooding. The special maps provided by the Environment Agency have been used by a group of amateur archaeologists to trace the paths of Roman roads that have lain buried under the land for some 1,600 years. The data was made publicly available in 2013, and since then the researchers have uncovered seven long-lost Roman roads across the country, including a 23-mile road between Ribchester and Lancaster. 70-year-old amateur archaeologist David Ratledge 
told the Times that this road in Lancashire is the first ancient Roman road to have been discovered in 150 years. In other news, the remains of a suspected pirate have been discovered beneath the playground of an Edinburgh school. The skeleton, uncovered at Victoria Primary School in the New Haven area of Edinburgh, has been carbon dated to the 16th or 17th century, the Independent reports. Due to the proximity to New Haven Harbour, which was once the site of a gibbet in which the bodies of executed criminals were displayed as a warning to others, it is believed the man was executed either for piracy or another crime. Experts believe the body was likely displayed in the gibbet before being buried in a shallow, unmarked grave. AOC Archaeology, which uncovered the skeleton, say the man was probably in his 50s when he died. Meanwhile, the Royal Shakespeare Company is to open up its archives for the first time to display a wealth of treasures used in historical performances of Shakespeare plays. Featuring letters, scripts, paintings and costumes worn by famous actors who have graced the RSC's stage, the permanent exhibition will also reveal behind-the-scenes secrets used to pull off special effects, The Telegraph reports. Exhibition highlights include the dress worn by Vivian Leigh in Macbeth in 1955, plus a number of items from before the First World War and the interwar period. The exhibition, titled The Plays the Thing, will form part of the restoration of the Swan Wing, the oldest part of the Stratford-upon-Avon Theatre that was built in 1879. The exhibition opens on the 21st of June. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time for more great history interviews. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.